From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and let's start with Blossom Deary. Those of you of a certain age will remember her having done some of the schoolhouse rock shorts, and then many others of you will just know her because she's Blossom Deary, and she's singing a song written by Cy Coleman and Carolyn Lee for a little review called Demi Dozen in the late 50s. Here is part of it. I have a feeling that beneath a little halo on your noble head There lies a thought or two the devil might be interested to know You're like the finish of a novel that I'll finally have to take to bed You fascinate me so Like Christopher Columbus when I'm near enough to contemplate The sweet geography descending from your eyebrow to your toe The possibilities are more than I can possibly enumerate That's why you fascinate me so And the reason I'm using that song, other than that it's basically the musical evocation of a gin and tonic, is that word so. You fascinate me so. This is going to be a podcast about so. This is for you, Evie, and what I'm talking about is that it bothers so many of you that apparently lately so many people are starting sentences with so. I would say that that is probably the third or fourth most frequent question that I get. Why are people doing this? And the truth is I hit on this a little bit in a very previous show, but, you know, it's getting to the point. This is my 62nd 62nd episode. And that means that, you know, I can't assume that a lot of you or even most of you have been listening since the beginning and nobody is going to endure 30 hours of me to find out. And for those of you who did hear me touch on this somewhat, probably well over a year ago, I get the feeling, especially from some of the exchanges that I've had with some people writing in, that I didn't quite answer your question. And I want to get at this because if so many people have a question about language, then it is worth answering. And this one actually turns out to have a more interesting answer than one might think. But first of all, we have to zero in on exactly what we're talking about. What do we mean when we talk about this business of people beginning sentences with so? What, what, what do we mean? Just like when we talked about, you know, how did the founding fathers talk? Don't we really mean did they have British accents, et cetera, et cetera? What do we mean by this business of so, because, and don't think this is going to be the whole show, but yes, I am going to go in this direction a little bit, because it is by no means new for people using English to start a sentence with so in itself. And so we can go back. We can go back. We're talking Chaucer. We're talking about the 1300s. This is around when English becomes something we can recognize instead of, you know, the German that old English basically was. Way back, 1300s, Troilus and Cressida, and, you know, the way it begins is with, So on a day he laid a him doon to sleep. So 
And so on a day, he laid himself down to sleep. I don't know why I think Middle English had that, you know, vaudeville Swedish intonation, but let's just keep it. And so, so on a day, he laid him down to sleep. And it begins with that. So, and after that is, and so befell that in his sleep, him thought. And so it happened that he thought in his sleep. But it just starts out with that. So, which means that people speaking English way back then, way back before the Black Death, way back when everybody died at 11, people were already beginning their sentences with so. If we have this sense, which I completely understand that Middle English speakers might as well have been Neanderthals, that was a long time ago, they're not us, they're barely speaking our language. What about more recent? What about within the 20th century? But let's go to the early 20th century. Let's talk about dead but recorded people. And so this is the clip that I used when I touched on this on the show a while ago. This is a comedian, vaudeville comedian, who's recording in 1929, and he sounds so modern. This guy could be somebody up on stage today. It's astonishing. His name was Jack Osterman, and here he is just talking. You're listening to Stand Up 1929, and listen how he does the so thing. So we walked in the rift, and we sat down, and the waiter came over, lovely fellow, the waiter, and she said to the waiter, I said rather to her, I said, what do you want? What do you want? And she said, I want a sirloin steak. Not a kidding right away. So I said, get serious and tell the waiter what you want. Or let's go a little after 1929. Let's go to 1935. This is one of my favorite comedians of that goofy era, Ed Wynn, probably most familiar now as the uncle who loves to laugh in Mary Poppins. He had been doing that character for 50 years before. And here he is on his radio show when he was at the very height of his popularity. It's 1935. And Ed Wynn had this joke where he'd just tell all these silly little stories. And the transition would be that he'd say, so, and then he'd go on with something else. Now, instead of hearing me do it, I actually dug up an example. This was this was hard. I dug up an example of him actually doing what was a very well-known catchphrase back in the early and mid-30s. Here he is. At the Cape Rises, the old maid is looking for a husband in Europe. <laughs> First she goes to Sweden because she hears that that's where the matches are made, you see. <laughs> then she goes to the Alps in Switzerland, the Alps of Mountains. Yes. And she spends all her time in that famous Valley of the Echoes. Yeah. That's where she spends all the time. She keeps hollering, I love you, the old maid hollers. Yeah. I love you. Uh-huh. <laughs> and every time the echo comes back, she blushes. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, she goes to Italy. When she gets to Italy, she meets the doctor. I don't know why, but I find Edwin very funny, and none of those jokes are funny. It's because he laughs at himself. But you hear that he does that so, and that means that people back then were starting their sentences with so. He's just magnifying and and goofifying it. But I get the feeling that that's not what you all mean. I think a lot of you aren't surprised to hear people like Osterman and Wynn and you know Chaucer and other stand-up comedians. I think you must be thinking about something else. Do you mean this? Let's listen to one of our gods, Terry Gross, and this is her interviewing another god, Melissa McCarthy. She delights me utterly every time she steps onto any stage or screen. But so here are two gods, Terry Gross and Melissa McCarthy. I think you guys mean, I think you all mean this sort of so. Here's Terry doing it. So I want to ask you about something you did so well, which is playing Sean Spicer on Saturday Night Live. 
So um, did you perform at gay clubs? So you're one of the women who has taken on like producing and writing films. So, quote unquote, you see how she jumps in with the so in order to create a transition. That. Or do you mean, and this is something that some people have written about, maybe you mean something even more specific, which is the way little Marky Zuckerberg uses so in this kind of geeky way. Apparently, this is a techie thing. I don't hang out much with techies, but my friend and colleague Jeff Nunberg has, and he says this dates back to about 2000, 2001, or probably the late 90s. Listen to how Mark Zuckerberg uses so when he starts to explain something. I want to start with just a basic question, Mark. What happened? What went wrong? So this was a major breach of trust, and and I'm really sorry that this happened. Um, you know, we have a basic responsibility to protect people's data. And if we can't do that, then, then we don't uh, deserve to have the opportunity to serve people. So our responsibility now is to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Is that what you all mean by this new usage of so? Because if that's what it is, then let's talk about that. Why has so jumped the rails and come to be used maybe so much more than it was in the past. And so the question is, as Lada Lenya asked in the first production of Cabaret, singing this song by John Kander and Fred Ebb. This is Lada Lenya singing in stereo. Here she goes. For the sun will rise and the moon will set And you learn how to settle for what you get It'll all go on if we're here or not So care, so what? So who cares? So what? It all goes on. So who cares? Who cares? Who cares? So what? It may not have been clear, but that song is called So What? This business of so, in the sense that I think you mean, the sort of Terry Gross, Mark Zuckerberg so, This so is used as a way of transitioning from one topic to another in a way in which you acknowledge the previous topic, you acknowledge that you agree with it, that you're okay with it, that you've taken in the information contained in it, but you are now going on to something else. It's a kind of a traffic managing item. So it might be about the past. You'll say, So it turns out that Bill bought himself a canoe and you're introducing that new topic. But when you say so, you're kind of very politely putting an end to what was talked about before. You're acknowledging that there were other things and now you're going to come in with something else. Or you won't be talking about something that happened before. You'll just introduce a brand new topic. So I've decided that I'm going to buy a canoe. That's a way of saying we have been talking about breeding aquarium fish and how it's hard to see the first seasons of Make Room for Daddy and how mom used Chanel number five. We've talked about those things. And now I'm going to talk about this canoe that I'm going to buy. Notice, for example, this is how you know that so is about giving a kind of a curtsy to the past. Somebody who is doing say, a series on the radio or a podcast or something like that, might at the very beginning of an episode say, so, and then they'll go talking about whatever they're going to do. 
That so implies that you've listened to them before, that this is a party that you've been at before or a party that metaphorically you've been at for a while. Because if you think about it, on that person's very first episode, they couldn't say so. That would be a little odd. Or if they do say so, it means that there's been a whole lot of introduction before, or it means that maybe the audience was being warmed up before, and so now they're saying so, but you have to realize that for them, other things have gone on. The so implies that something was going on before. It's a gentle transitioner. And so if Mark if Mark Zuckerberg is using that so when he's asked to explain something that's relatively complicated, then in his way, he's being polite. When you say, so the nucleotides come together and then the tracer RNA, blah, blah, blah. I'm just making this sort of thing up. If that's what you do when you explain things like that, you preface it with so, then what he's saying when he uses so in that way is he's doffing his cap to the things that were said before, and he's creating a kind of implication. All of this is subconscious, of course, but he's creating an implication that what he's about to say flows naturally from that which came before. Now, if Mark Zuckerberg is talking about it, then presumably what came before is a relatively uninformed interviewer having asked him a question, or in general, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is pretty smart and he's about to explain something very technical. When he says so, He's softening the fact that he's about to pontificate. He'll say, so, that's politely implying that all of this technical stuff that he's about to talk about actually just flows naturally from what went before. Of course, nobody actually thinks about these things consciously, but that's what a little thing like this, which a linguist calls a discourse marker, is doing. It's something you don't imagine a language would have a tool for, but in fact, Any language has tools for things like that all the time. For example, there's another usage of so that I have just noticed in an impressionistic way that it seems to be taken off, although I'm not aware of a study, and that's postposing this kind of so. Somebody will say, so we're going to put the camera right here, and if there's any glow from the window, then just say something, but I don't think there will be. So, and they'll put this little so afterwards. Well, okay, so... You're going to drink your grape soda and you can pretend that you don't like it because middle class people aren't supposed to like really sweet sodas. So they'll say. And that so is actually something very polite because what it implies is that we're going to transition to a new topic. And the reason that the person implies that they're going to transition to a new topic, even if they don't follow that so with anything, is because it's a way of making whatever they were talking about seem less pushy. You don't want it to just echo into the ether. It'll be, so you just sit there and wait, and if the sun bounces off the curtains, then unfortunately, you'll just have to wait. So that implies that then it's going to be, so the three bears ate their porridge or something like that. You don't have to follow it with anything. It's just to imply, okay, and now we're going to move on because that softens whatever that vaguely peremptory thing before was supposed to be. So is a transitioner. It's kind of polite. What so does, if all this sounds like I'm sort of making something up to make sense of something that really is just a matter of people not speaking precisely, it's just like well. Well does the same thing. Well, stage one, is something like, well, horses run faster, you might say to somebody. Well, horses run faster. Now, when you say well, in a way, you're saying that's all good and well, but yes, antelopes, well, I guess antelopes are actually faster. Guinea pigs can run. 
somebody might say. Then you say, well, horses run faster. So yes, guinea pigs can run. You know, you might have seen a guinea pig running on its little legs, but horses can outpace a guinea pig. So you're acknowledging what the other person said, but then adding what you think, which might even contradict what the other person said. That's what that well is for, because if you think about it, it's not literal. You know, well, what? You know, doing something well, what's been done well? It's not that. Well has changed, and that function has changed completely from what well originally meant. And once you have something like, well, horses run even faster, then you end up being able to extend that into using well as a way of politely curtsying to what was said before, but then moving on, making it seem less abrupt to just move on. That's what well is for. What is all this? This is called information structure. This is something that is familiar to linguists. It's the tools in a language for information structure. And this is as important in a language as so very much else is. Language is all about imparting something valuable. That's what it's for. You're communicating something to somebody. And we develop signals as to what we want the person we're speaking to to pay special attention to. To tell you the truth, this aspect of language, calling attention to something important, communicating something that we presume the other person didn't know and or they could benefit from hearing, that kind of calling attention to novelty, that's what language is based on. It's thought in some schools at this point, and I suspect they're right, that that is how language began. Language didn't begin with people sitting under a tree and coming up with names for the sun and for water buffalo and for sky and things like that. That's a cute notion. That's probably not how it began. Probably what all of this is based on, the topic of this podcast, language, what all of it is based on is that human beings developed a propensity for signaling one another to impart information and being receptive to somebody doing that. And as obvious as that seems, think about how alien that is with other animals. So even with, you know, apes who are communicating and have social hierarchy, etc., it's a very narrow number of messages that they're trying to communicate to one another. And none of them are so sophisticated that you imagine that one of them taps the other one and the other one looks at the other one for a long time decoding exactly what they mean. The sorts of things that baboons mean are really pretty basic, pretty immediate, and pretty programmed in their minds. And once you go below, and I hate to say below, but I did say it, once you go below them, think about dogs and cats. Notice that as sophisticated as dogs and cats are, in many ways, there's no such thing as one dog signaling to another dog that it means something other than I'm going to bite you, I'm going to have sex with you, or something like that. There's no such thing as a dog saying something to another dog other than, Gary Larson got this just right, hey, 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 all of barking is just hey, hey, hey. And then really just think about cats. No matter what they do with each other, the adorable playing, etc., etc., they do not look into one another's eyes to communicate something. It's human beings who probably started doing this. It's actually, it's getting pretty specific. This probably started when it became harder to take down live animals. Live animals became scarcer at a certain point, probably in eastern or southerly eastern Africa. And so Homo sapiens probably started surviving on big carrion finds. 
So the idea was you had to travel a great distance and get as much out of some dead elephant as you could. And the truth is that if you're trying to get something out of a dead elephant, a lion or a hyena might come to try to eat you or another band of humans might come and eat you and then eat the elephant. And so you had to band a group of people together. You had to tell them that there was a dead animal, where it was, and ask them to band with you so you could go and with strength in numbers, take that elephant, chop it down to the bones and have enough meat to last you until, you know, some leopard dies three weeks later. That was probably the scenario, but you didn't need specific words for that. You could have started in a situation like that with gesture, with grunts, but you had to be ready to listen to one another over a long period in a way that meerkats and real cats and dogs just cannot do. It starts with this kind of information structure. You're imparting information. You're giving novelty. And so here we are with something like so, which in a way less urgent than, you know, let's go gorge on rotten elephants so that we don't die, is transitioning us from one topic to another saying, hey, this is important, and then is also polite. The idea being, I know that you think other things are important. I think this is important, so, and you move on. Now, the question, is this so new? Well, languages have to have a way of doing what so does. But I'm not going to tell you that people have been using so in the, we can call it the gross Zuckerberg way forever, because, you know, they haven't. You know, if I'm really honest and I think about what I happen to know about the history of American English, yes, this new usage has jumped the rails lately. So, for example, as my listeners know, I am overly immersed in old radio. And so I know what an interview show sounded like in 1938, for example. And so was not used the way Terry Gross uses it. It was well and now instead. I can even show you because this is our era of internets and podcasts and such. This is an episode of the game show Information, Please in 1938, a rare example of being able to hear people speaking spontaneously in 1938 in clear sound. Here they are, and they're no so's. Instead, it's wells and nows. Now, folks, remember that this quartet has not seen this question, these questions in advance. This is an informal, spontaneous, unrehearsed program. Now, in just another moment, uh, uh, that's, just, uh, that's just Mr. Adams filing a wisecrack for future use. Uh, here's another one on a musical subject. From Mr. Harold S. Oikel, 39 Goldthwaite Street, Lynn, Massachusetts. Now, which of the following, which doesn't belong in that group? Same thing on old TV. And so you're listening for the so's and where people use them. They don't always use them at all. And actually, an interview in 1955 can sound kind of abrupt by our standards because people are less concerned with these transitions. That's a whole other topic. But you use well most of the time. This is, I just, this is random. Jack Parr his rendition of The Tonight Show, and he's got Judy Garland on. And listen to him talking to her. It's not so, Judy. It's well, Judy. Oh, it wasn't the idea. How was Mickey? And he went out and smoked, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, how far did you go to school in that kind of system? We went to school, clear through the... Uh... High school? Yeah. So, <laughs> it used to be well. And really, you can go back in the language and you can find various items that have been used for this function. So, so is new in the function, but the function is not new. You know, actually, in Old English, of all things, it was what that was used for this. I, I kid you not. And so, for example, here is a sentence that means, then he said, 
you know that I said before to you that the highest good and highest happiness were one. So then he said, we have to use the old English voice. In old English, everybody is always very tired and near death. Old English voice. Then he said, the quavit. That's then he said. And then, you know that I said before to you, the worst that ich der said. So that's, you know that I said to you, but it isn't just the worst that ich der said. It's actually what the worst that ich der said. And so it's, what you know that I said before to you that the highest good and highest happiness were one. What makes no literal sense there? Throughout the old English literature, there are these nonsensical what's. Actually, it's so. So it comes out as, then he said, so you know that I said before to you that the highest good and highest happiness were one. So it's like, that's old English. Beowulf, have you ever suffered through Beowulf? It starts with what? And so it comes out as, what in days of yore we heard of the glory of the spear carrying Danes tribal kings? Just starts with what? And translations often have it as like, lo, or something like that. But really, it's just this what that sits there not making sense. If you look at how what is used in Old English, it's a discourse particle. And what it means is so. So Beowulf actually begins with so. It's kind of like, so, in days of yore, we heard of the glory of the spear-carrying Danes' tribal kings, and how they fought. that's how Beowulf begins. It was that so kind of word, except it happened to be what. The fact that what could be used in the same function helps us answer another question involved here. Why is so being used in this way? And the answer to that is because, even if we've already got words that do it, such as well or the more abrupt now, language is always renewing things. It's always coming up with new ways of doing things that it had ways of doing before. Think about the future. And so I'm going to run in the race. I'm going to eat vermicelli or something like that. Even when you're not going to be moving towards anything, I'm going to, I'm gonna. That's something that English takes on in the 1600s. It had a way of expressing the future. You had your will. That was fine. But then gonna comes along and ends up having a slightly different meaning. In some dialects of English now, we have fixing to or finna, such as in the American South. Another kind of future. And so it isn't the word go this time. It's the word fix that gets sucked in. And, you know, sometimes the old way is getting kind of old. Well, for example, used in that Jack Parr information please way. It's almost a grunt in modern English. We can barely feel it sometimes. So could be argued to be a little bit more vivid. Notice that we're certainly more aware of it than we are of well. And the thing is, these information structure words in any language has to have them. They have to come from somewhere. You know, you can't just make up a word. It can't be just something like jujubataka. You know, that's nice, but you can't just make it up. Nobody else would want to say jujubataka. And so they have to come from somewhere. We can't just point or we do. We do use gesture to move topics along. But suppose you're talking in the dark and frankly, gestures alone just won't do it. We're not dealing with elephant carcasses anymore. We have a society to live in and to communally run into the ground. And so we need to have words to do this. And where we get the words is from the words that we already have. We take their meanings and we transform them into other meanings. That's where these markers have always come from. So in old English speaking society, what, what, becomes this 
kind of so word. What happened to be the one? It would have seemed equally exotic at a certain point in English history for well to be used that way. The adverbial form of good, what does it have to do with transitioning from one thing to another? Now we wouldn't give it a thought. Instead, we're thoughting about so. And who knows what that word is going to be that next goes into that function, but we can be quite sure that it will. Language is always changing. And we know that partly because Old English is German and Middle English is weird. And Shakespeare is like we're a little drunk. And here we are. Language is always changing. And so as we've seen on this show, the word like ends up becoming all sorts of things. Uptalk is not questions. It used to be questions, but now it's really just soliciting agreement, soliciting a sense of togetherness within an exchange or even the N-word and how it means my dear or buddy in many ways of using English language is always changing. And that means that Ethel Merman was right. I'm marching along with time. I'll be marching That's 1938. I've used that before. And that's Alexander's Ragtime Band. The song is so good and so was she. But really, that that is our theme here, that language just marches along. And to give you a sense, just one more sense of the fact that we have to allow that language is like the clouds. It's always changing. Think about so. Like we think that so means, you know, such as. And we just leave it there. And, you know, back in Old English, the word was swa. And it did mean such. But you know where that came from? In Proto-Indo-European, way down in the south of Ukraine, when a patriarchal society with horses and wheels was using the language that became most of the languages of Europe and so very many of Iran and India, that word swa was just sway, roughly. And sway meant basically self. Now, sway starts as self, and then it starts meaning as itself. And then from there, something can mean such, you know, as itself and then as that. So little sway ends up just being squirted all over Europe. It's amazing how that little sway is in so very many words that you would never expect it to be in. And so sway meant self and it is in the English word self. The se has got the little sway in there. It's kind of like the sperm is inside the egg. What a kind of an analogy is that? But self, that's got sway in there. Sibling has got sway in there. Swain has got little sway in there because swain means one's own servant. So as itself, belonging to itself. Little sway meaning self. That's in suicide. That's in swami because a swami is one's own master. Or a word like seduce or segregate, or separate. The little se, that se goes back to sed, which means without in Latin. And that goes back to something that means on one's own, as in back to as itself. So that little sed, seduce, secret, like sedcret, sedition, segregate. you can sedlect, you can separate. All of that is little sway, which in another rendition, became so. Sober, sober is se-ebriated. You're separate from being ebriated, so it's sober. Also, solo, you're by yourself. Sullen, you're particular to yourself. Or, get this, little sway 
goes down into Greek, it picks up a little piece of crud. It's like something's on the bottom of its feet because it steps into a room after toddler's birthday party. It's got some crap on its feet. So swe is swedio. Well, then after a while, the swe drops off. And so you've just got edio. That becomes idio. And next thing you know, you've got idiom, idiosyncrasy, idiot. And if you notice, all those things are about kind of being yourself. An idiom is idiosyncratic and an idiot is very much like themselves and probably alone. All of that just from little sway. Absolutely amazing. And if you're wondering, sway, Proto-Indo-European, swa, Old English, the W drops out because it's used so much. And next thing you know, you have so. We know of one other word where a W drops out like that because it's used so very, very much. And that's two. Why isn't it two? Because it's tired and the W dropped out. And so you get toe, which becomes two. Or you get swa becoming just sa and then sa and then sa. So that's how these things happen quite a bit in this show. And so I think we need a bit of a review. And Diana, I'm sorry, but it is going to be something from 70 Girls 70 by Candor and Ebb. Again, this is a song called The Caper. It's about reviewing something complicated. This is Hans Conried, folks. And here he goes. S is Sadie's store, and SB is Sadie's back, and SF is Sadie's front, and OS operational site. Now T1 is telephone 1, which is to the left in SB, and over here are 2 and 3, telephone 2 and telephone 3. Now telephone 2 and telephone 3 are over to the right in front of SS, and over to the left of SS and the OS. See? You see? You do? Let's review. SS Sadie's store, SB Sadie's back, SF Sadie's front, OS operational site, T1, telephone one. Diana Zorba is Candorneb's worst score, not this one. Sorry. What have we learned? One, so has been used sentence initially forever, forever. Two, its new function, though, and that is new, is as a topic introducer, a polite topic introducer. Three. They're always polite topic introducers. It's just that nobody tells you and they have to come from somewhere. And so just happen to come up for the function. What is the song that you go out on after a show like that? Well, you know, just on something, no more so. There's a song by Todd Rundgren, which was a big hit for about 10 minutes in 1972 called I Saw the Light. And I remember it playing in big gas guzzling cars when I was seven. I still love it. You can hear Muzak versions of it if you're at pharmacies now and then. And there's just something catchy about it. It sounds like somebody playing the guitar who smells kind of bad way back in 1972. It's just a happy, simple little song. And maybe I can pretend to think that it's because I'm hoping that you saw the light about so. But it's just a good song. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. This show was edited, as always, by Mike Volo. It was probably harder than usual because I have a cold. And I am 
with my occasional bouts of bronchial asthma. And yes, I have my inhaler with me, John McWhorter. Cause I saw 